Welcome to the Well Community Jokes. I was 12 years old and it was a hot, beautiful summer day. My friend Drew had come with me to my parents' cottage, which sits on a lake called Duck Lake. It's about an hour outside North Bay, so we're talking it's a ways up there, and it's still off the grid to this day. We're just starting to get some cell phone coverage if you go out into the middle of the lake. But our cottage used to be part of a Christian campground called Woodlands. So we're not alone. We're actually part of several other cottages that line the shore and that are tucked back in the bush. And there used to be a tuck shop and trampolines and shuffleboard. But the area that we loved most was the beach. Right in the middle of it all was this, this beach with a bit of a sandbar that we could build sandcastles, had a slide, it's where the boats would come and you could start skiing and tubing. But the best part was this wooden raft that sat about 100 feet from the shore. And it was anchored out there in the water and we would swim to that raft and we would play all sorts of games out there. But what we loved is that it just allowed us to be in the water. We would wrestle and throw each other off and see who could be the last person standing. It was anchored underneath and kind of at the center. So we would stand on one corner of it and try and get the raft to flip over, which always dro drove the guy who ran the camp nuts because he'd have to go back out and flip it back. But this one particular day, Drew and I swam out to this raft and we were the only two kids there. And we just had a blast. We would wrestle, we would jump off, dive down to the bottom, find clams, bring them back. And what we loved about the raft is that it just allowed us to stay in the water because it gave us a place to rest. We would climb back up and we'd lay there and catch our breath again and then jump back in and play around and horse around and jump, climb up, jump, climb up. It was awesome. But I remember the moment when I looked away from the shore and I looked back out over the rest of the lake and over the trees and I noticed the sun was beginning to set and the colors were just beautiful. There was deep reds and oranges, and as it trailed out, there were yellows and pinks and purples. But I remember thinking, oh man, we've lost track of time. It's getting late. We need to get back to the shore. So Drew and I turned back around to the shore, only to discover what was normally a hundred feet away was now a thousand feet away with losing track of time, with just playing and having fun on this raft, we didn't realize that it had disconnected from its anchor, it, is, it had untied itself, and we had been floating into the middle of Duck Lake all by ourselves. <laughs> you had these two 12-year-old boys stranded on a wooden raft a thousand feet from the shore. What do we do? Well, why am I sharing this with you? It's because Facebook is driving me nuts. <laughs> okay, let me explain how I got from this raft to Facebook. If you've been watching regularly, you'll know that this isn't my first time talking about my struggle, my love-hate relationship with social media. 
I deleted the apps from my phone several months ago. I still haven't put them back, but there's that temptation to go in through Safari and be like, let's just see what's going on and let's let's check social media. I might have missed out on something, even though most of the time I haven't, but the struggle is real. But what I find on my newsfeed more and more is that there's other people, not just people, other Christians, other people who claim to be followers of Jesus, other pastors even, vehemently fighting over our current restrictions, over the current guidelines, over vaccinations. And even the ones that try and say that they're sharing this post, I'm just sharing this out of love. But please don't comment or disagree with me, otherwise I will back up my position more and more and tear you down to shreds. But all out of love. <laughs> and I find myself saying time and time again, oh, for the love. Like, I'm getting frustrated. It's angering me. So I've been asking myself, why is this making me so upset? What's happening here? Why are people becoming so divided and taking such extreme positions? We're no longer just talking about, hey, let, let's come to the table and discuss. Let's agree to disagree. Let's hold space for one another. No, this is about being right and being wrong. This extreme or this extreme. There's no middle ground anymore. It's not about coming to the table. It's about who is going to win. There's no longer any middle ground. And that's what's been troubling me. And what I see happening is that we, myself included, I, I'm not saying this from the sidelines. I know this, I am this, I'll own the crazy. On most days, I am a hot mess. But what's happening is we're drifting. And yet, we don't yet realize it. We've become untied from our anchor and we've been drifting and moving further and further away from what once grounded us in the center. And perhaps part of it is to do with the lack of community, the lack of relationship throughout this pandemic that we're all experiencing. We continue to find ourselves stuck in isolation, so we're going to these social platforms to vent, to air our grievances, to feel like we're conversing. But the problem is, is that more often than not, it's a one-sided conversation. It's me getting everything out there for you to have to deal with. There's no accountability. We can hide behind our screens and we put it out there and we walk away. And I think even with this lack of community and relationships, we're not filtering our thoughts through anyone or by anyone. We're not running them by close friends and putting them out there. We're just throwing them to the masses and saying, we're right, you're wrong. We're leaving it for everyone else to respond and react to. And while I admit this might just be my issue and something I don't understand, I have to admit that it's breaking my heart. And as I sat with it and asked myself, why is my heart breaking over this? And why am I so compelled to talk about this tonight? This is what I came up with. That there is a clear connection between how we treat each other and how a watching world will feel about Jesus. That's why it matters. The world is watching us.
And there is a connection between how we treat each other and how the watching world will feel about Jesus. I don't care if you hold a different opinion than me. I don't care if you see things differently. I welcome that. I want to be in relationship with that. I want to be able to hold space for differences. Let's have the conversation. Let's debate. Let's wrestle through it. Because what I care about isn't winning, isn't being right. It's you. I care about you and I care about how the rest of the world sees Jesus' love through how I behave and how I act and what I say. So the question that we have to wrestle with is how can we do this better? How can we love better? How can we extend the love of Christ better? How can we live out of a place of love better rather than a place of fear anger and enmity and don't worry we are not the first people to have to wrestle through this in fact israel god's chosen people had to work through this this tension or reality when they were challenged to realize that god doesn't have favorites this is sometimes mind-blowing for people like wait what but i aren't, aren't i chosen the, the, the Israelites were thinking the same. The Jewish people were thinking like, what? Because in their minds, if they are chosen, if they are in fact God's chosen people, well, doesn't that make them God's favorite? They're chosen. Enter Jesus. I love it. Jesus comes along and shares what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapters 5 through 7. And here he shows us that his way of life is different. The kingdom of God is not what we expected. He tells us to watch what our Heavenly Father does and then do the same ourselves. And this is where we see him explaining to Israel, to the Jewish people, that they're not chosen to be God's special people over here while the rest of the world remains over there in darkness. Instead, they are chosen to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. They're chosen so that through them, God can bless all people. Do you see that? They're not chosen as God's favorites. They're chosen to be the vehicle and the means through which God can bless all people, the world, everyone. Jesus is opening up and inviting us into a new way of living, a new way of being in the world. And halfway through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus makes a shocking announcement about loving others. And not just others, enemies. Jesus says, you're familiar with the old law, love your friend, and its unwritten companion, hate your enemy. I'm challenging that. I'm telling you to love your enemies. Let them bring out the best in you, not the worst. Wow. Love your enemies. So, who exactly is our enemy? Well, in today's cultural climate, I would go so far as to say anyone who doesn't agree with us. At least that's how we treat them, right? 
If you disagree with me, whew, you are going to know it. You're against me. There's no room for, for tolerance anymore. Agree to disagree. The Greek word used here is ektros. And it conveys the sense of hostility, anger, hatred, enmity, or simply put, someone who is actively opposed to you. And from what I can tell, social media and the news is a breeding ground for conflict and tension and disagreement. It's a place where we can oppose one another's ideas and present our own truer and more right ideas. And that's what sells. That, that's what gets us hooked, right? I don't often open up the news or scroll through my social media feed and discover people striving to live in harmony, trying to create something beautiful out of the messiness of life. Now, I'm not saying it's not there. I do know it is, but you have to work really hard to find it. You have to know what you're looking for because that's not what sells. That's not what grabs our attention. That doesn't get us hooked. Conflict does. Chaos does. There's something about it that we just want to attach ourselves onto. We want to have an enemy that we can oppose. We love a good conflict, don't we? At least one that doesn't have us in the center of it, but more on the sidelines. And why is that? Well, I think it's because we like having an enemy. I think there's this very real temptation to have someone or something or a group of people that we can be opposed to because it feels like it sharpens our sense of identity. Oh, I'm not like those people. And then suddenly we feel like it builds us up because we're not like those people. But you know what? I remember a mentor telling me once why a merge between two different church groups didn't happen. And he said, Kev, we tried to make it work, but we couldn't agree on one thing. They wanted to, they wanted to define themselves by who they were not. Whereas we wanted to define ourselves by who we were. So rather than making the box saying, we're not this, we're not this, we're not this, we're not this. This group was saying, no, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. And out of that, it allows differences and different perspectives and viewpoints. But at the end of the day, these are the essentials that we stand upon. You see how the, the, the nuance is so slight, but how it's two different trajectories. Defining yourself by who you're not, by creating the enemy, the us and them, or standing upon who you are in Christ. Let's face it, we are constantly being given a slew of enemies to choose from. Conservatives, liberals, Catholics, Calvinists, evolutionists, creationists, Fox News, CNN, the list goes on and on. But I believe that Jesus shows us how we can be how to define ourselves by who we are in him. So we don't need to operate out of fear or anger or have an enemy to oppose. What did Jesus say about how we should treat those who are actively opposed to us? Love them. But Jesus, wait a second. You, you don't actually know what I know. 
Okay, if you only knew the details, Jesus, I think you'd support me on this one. Like, you'd at least make an exception for this person because, whoo, no, you, you don't know what I know. Let's go back to verse 43. Did you notice that it said there's an unwritten rule to hate your enemy? But then in verse 44, it changes to love your enemies. There's a shift. Again, it's ever so slight that it's so easy to miss, but something huge is happening here. Enemy in the singular particularizes it, narrows it down to one person, one group of people. But Jesus shifts things from the particular, from the narrow, from the pragmatic, and he expands it by calling us to love our enemies. No longer just enemy, enemies. He's expanding it to all people, to anyone who opposes you, who is hostile towards you, who grates your gears, or who oppresses you. Jesus says, love them. Love everyone. Jesus is saying, love everyone as I have loved you, or as I love everyone. You see, we're not just talking about an emotion, this, oh, feel good, lovey-dovey. No, this love here refers to an attitude. It's a choice. It's a conscious decision to say, I am going to choose love. And if we go back earlier to verse 38, just before Jesus drops the hammer with love your enemies, he actually offers us a new way forward or as N.T. Wright puts it, a new justice, a new creative healing and restorative justice. Jesus says, you have heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. What? Well, the old way of justice was designed to prevent revenge from getting carried away. A tooth for a tooth, an eye for an eye. Pretty straightforward. But Jesus goes even further. Jesus moves us forward. And he says it's better to have no vengeance at all, but rather reflect the patient love of God himself. This God, the God of Israel, wants his people to shine his light into the world so that all people will see that he is the one true God and that at the very core of who he is, is love. What other God is like that and encourages its people to be like that also? In verse 39, when he says, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also, Man, I have to admit, I've read this verse and I've heard it so many times. But the theologian N.T. Wright really helped me see these verses in a new light recently. He showed me that to be struck on the right cheek almost certainly meant being hit with the back of the right hand. So to get to the right cheek, or to get to the right cheek, I guess on this side, it's, it has to be with the back hand because an open hand would hit the left cheek. But you see, this isn't just violence. 
This is an insult. It implies you're inferior. So what's the answer? Hitting back? No, of course not. That just keeps the violence going. But by offering the other cheek, you're saying, hit me again if you'd like, but now is an equal, not an inferior. Do you see how Jesus continually moves things forward? And he elevates the status of the oppressed, of the marginalized, and he does it out of a place of love. If you get hit, don't take the insult, stand up. You're an equal, you're valuable, you matter. And because you know that you are in me, you can stand in a place of love and you can love your enemy. And then in verse 40, Jesus says, if you're sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. Or as the message translates it, gift wrap your best coat and make a present of it. <laughs> I love that. Like just for the show, make a present of it, gift it to them. In a world where most people only wore a shirt and a coat or a cloak, there's a sense of calling them out as to what it is they're doing. As this other person is trying to reduce you to a state of shame and take as much as they can from you, you're simply giving it to them and exposing what they're doing by exposing your nakedness. You want it? It's yours. And then in verse 41, Jesus shares a third example, reflecting the Roman military occupation. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. You see, Roman soldiers had the right to force civilians to carry their equipment for one mile. That was the law. They could do that. But the law prohibited them from making someone go more than that. It was strict. It was the law. They could not do it. They could not demand that. One mile was all they got. But what's Jesus' advice? He says, turn the tables. Don't worry, don't plot revenge. Go the extra mile. Copy the example of your generous God. Astonish the soldier, perhaps even alarm him, because what if his commanding officer finds out? But just as Jesus continually shows us, we are to show others that there is a new way to be human. There is a new way to be in this world that doesn't plot revenge, that doesn't join the armed resistance. It simply practices the servant life. And it's a life marked by generosity and by love. It's a life marked by God. Because here's the truth of loving our enemies and loving those who are actively opposed to us. When you love your enemy, when you truly, deeply love the other person, they're no longer your enemy. The first time I realized that, my mind was blown. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I love your enemies. I know what love is. I know what it is to have an enemy. But when you actually, truly care for that other person, you deeply love that person, they're no longer your enemy. 
Again, we follow the example of our Heavenly Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God loves the world. And then Paul writes in Romans 5.10, when we were God's enemies, while we were actively opposed to God, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. So how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? While we were enemies, God chose love. You see, the way of Jesus confronts and disrupts our way of life with a new kind of love that can actually transform us into mature and compassionate and generous and loving people, people who love even our enemies. Is this the kind of love that we exude? Is this the kind of love that our neighbors would describe if asked about us? Is this the kind of love that's embedded within our social media presence? What would it look like to reflect God's generous love? It might feel impossible and on one hand, yeah, kind of is, that's true. But Jesus' teaching isn't just good advice, it's good news. Jesus lived this himself and opened up a new way of being human so that all who follow him can discover it as well. And we are promised the gift of his Holy Spirit, which empowers us to step in to this life of love. When they mocked Jesus, he didn't respond. When they challenged him, he told quizzical and sometimes even funny stories that forced them to think differently. When they struck him, he took the pain. And when they nailed him to a cross, he prayed for them. This is like what he tells us in the second half of verse 44. Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. The Sermon on the Mount isn't just about us, it's about Jesus. This was the blueprint for his own life. He asks nothing of us that he hasn't faced himself. And the Sermon on the Mount isn't about how to behave. Rather, I believe Matthew is showing us what God is really like and that in Jesus we see Emmanuel. God with us in person. It's about discovering the living God in the loving and dying Jesus and learning to reflect that love into a world that desperately needs it. The world is watching. May they see the Well Community Church as a loving assortment of people committed to loving Jesus, to loving their God, and to loving their community who adore their Savior and can't get enough of one another. This is a story that heals, a story that saves, and a story that calls us forward into a better future, a future that's marked by love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for your love. And thank you that we see your love in its full expression in your son, Jesus. God, I pray that as we continue to live out the days and weeks ahead, that we live in such a way that our lives are marked by love. And not just love for our family and friends and those we get along with, but love for all people, even those who actively oppose us. God, I pray for everyone watching tonight that you stir in them a new sense of love, a fresh expression for how they can go out and live this just as you have. And God, for those who are just hearing about you tonight, discovering you for the first time, or the dots are finally connecting and living in a relationship with you is making sense. Oh God, I pray that you continue to draw them near to you. Help them to understand your love and God transform them with your love. God, we surrender to you as the true king of the world. And this week as we go out and as we see things that just make us roll our eyes and say, oh, for the love, may we remember to share your love in all we do and say and in who we are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.